Welcome to the Museum of Femininity, a podcast exploring themes, material, culture and stories that relate to the struggles and triumphs of women, both past and present. Hello, welcome back to the Museum of Femininity. Uh, My name is Charlotte Appleyard and today is the final episode in our Male Impersonators series. I'm particularly excited about this episode because I feel like it's quite different to what we've covered before. We're very much moving away from the Victorian music hall scene and into the 20th century where we will be exploring uh, different cultures and different forms of nightlife and entertainment as expressed through the the, the sort of performance genre of male impersonation. Um, And as well as that, in this episode I will be covering women of colour predominantly, um, so as well as uh, uh, an African-American woman in 1920s New York. We will also look at a more contemporary institution in the form of Takarazuka, which is a theatre company in Japan that is an all-female cast. And it is glorious, something I, I think I sort of discovered when I was a teenager and I was heavily in my musical theatre phase that I'm still not quite out of. Um, And yes, very melodramatic, high romance, all singing, all dancing, lavish, crazy costumes, big, massive set pieces, um, a real feast for the eyes. So Takarazuka is so different on scale in comparison to um, the first person I'll be covering, who is Gladys Bentley, who very much, although incredibly successful and very well paid, like like many male impersonators, did spend a big chunk of her career performing in very small clubs and bars, which had quite an intimate setting. So I'm looking forward to Uh, exploring different examples of male impersonation uh, and really showing you the variety and all the different kinds of women who take part in this profession. So as I mentioned, the first performer I will be discussing is Gladys Bentley. She was born in 1907 in Philadelphia. She was also um, a very well-known African-American male impersonator who was famed for her baldy and charismatic uh, songs and also playing with gender expectations in her act. So she would wear a tuxedo and a top hat and she would sing very bluesy songs in this deep, raspy voice. And she was an incredible pianist. It was really quite something to hear. Uh, So before embarking on her career as a musician, Um, Gladys was the eldest of four children and she was the daughter of immigrant parents from Trinidad. Her mother and father wanted the best for her and her siblings and they always encouraged them to behave and dress in a respectable manner. Gladys was already a tomboy and she was not a fan of dresses uh, which she was forced to wear. She often rebelled against this and decided to borrow her brother's clothing. Unsurprisingly, for this period in history, this created a troubled relationship with her parents, especially with her mother, 
Um, she spoke about this later in an article we'll talk more about towards the end of Gladys's life. Um, and in this article, uh, Gladys writes, quote, When they told my mother she had given birth to a girl, she refused to touch me. She wouldn't even nurse me, and my, and my grandmother had to raise me for six months on a bottle before they could persuade my mother to take care of her own baby. I think Gladys has said in the past that her mother had a bit of an aversion to um, female children. So, I don't know, can't help but wonder, maybe as a very young child, she tried to, you know, please her mother somehow by looking more like her brothers, who were perhaps more favourably treated. But then that's a bit of a contradiction because, of course, her mother, being quite conservative, would have wanted her to present herself as the perfect little girl. So it's interesting how the mind works and reacts to certain forms of rejection. Although from what Gladys just said, uh, I can't help but wonder if her mother was perhaps suffering from postnatal depression or something like that, which may not have been as widely diagnosed in that in, in the early 20th century. So of course, we've touched on this a bit, but Gladys behaved in a very unladylike manner. And from an early age, she developed um, crushes on girls and women. So in particular, her primary school teacher. So it's quite clear that Gladys was a lesbian. And, you know, quite naturally, she started to, to have these romantic feelings as a young, as a young person. Um, and I think that's the case for, for everybody, regardless of what your sexuality is. Um, and as a child, uh, she, she was seen as being un unacceptable and was even sent to a doctor. Uh, she was merely being herself, though, and likely knew that she didn't want to repress this side of herself. And she was not willing to change to please society at this stage in her life. So when she was 16, she ran away from home to pursue her musical career in New York, where she could live as a cross-dressing ball dagger. So this was the moniker for a butch lesbian. She quickly embarked on a career as an entertainer in Harlem following World War I, when this part of New York exploded in popularity and became a hotbed of speakeasies and illegal bars during the period of Prohibition. In the neighbourhood, there was also a thriving jazz scene, a growing liberal attitude to sex as well. So Gladys was completely absorbed in this exciting new world where she felt like she could truly be herself. So there was absolutely no, no hiding who she was during this part in her life. Initially, she started her career by singing and playing the piano at parties. Soon her reputation grew partly due to her ability to improvise salacious lyrics, which were also a hit with the crowds. These speakeasies often had an intimate atmosphere and allowed Gladys to interact freely with the audience by weaving between tables, even flirting with ladies and making them blush with her indecent songs. Gladys Bentley became one of the highest paid black women in the US and reportedly made $125 a week which mostly went towards her dapper wardrobe, 
her success and wealth is perhaps best reflected in the fact she had servants and owned a Park Avenue apartment, which was luxuriously furnished. In 1929, OK Records signed Bentley and she recorded eight songs about women who were mistreated by men. This contrasted greatly with her live performances, which were more bawdy and lively, with Bentley playing up her butchness. One aspect of Bentley's life I find incredibly interesting is the, the fact, although she dressed in men's clothing, she was evidently a woman, addressing herself with female pronouns and had a prominent bust that did not disguise her womanly form. I think based on previous male impersonators we've looked at, they clearly... Um, wanted to pass as men. You may even argue some of them were trans men. Uh, and, and undoubtedly, they would have felt like showing their female form would have ruined the illusion um, and probably would have bound their chest in some way. Um, but to me, the fact Gladys did not do that and was very like, I am a woman who dresses in a butch way uh, is a clear indicator of Bentley's pride and openness in regards to her sexuality. She was a lesbian and did not try to hide this like other male impersonators perhaps who try to look like men in their daily life. She, she wasn't having any of that. She was very clear in her female identity as well as her love for women. So this is further highlighted by her public marriage to a white woman in 1931. This was conducted in a civil ceremony in New Jersey. However, no evidence survives giving more detail about who the bride was. Later in life, Gladys Bentley would marry again, but under much different circumstances that would shed sad light on the issue of Bentley's self-image and how she navigated life as a woman in 1950s America. Returning to Bentley's early career, she performed in some of the most well-known clubs of the day, including the Cotton Club and Harry Hanbury's Clam House, which was a famous gay speakeasy located in the centre of Harlem in the notorious Jungle Alley, which stretched from 133rd Street between 7th and Lenox Avenue. Her playful inversion of gender norms was further highlighted in her 1934-7 review at the Ubanji Club, which featured an all-male chorus line in women's drag, so that's really fun. In 1933, Bentley and Harry Hansbury and Nat Palin found themselves in the middle of a Supreme Court battle, where Bentley was sued following her trying to take her new musical to Broadway. It was said that the club uh, Hansbury owned had built its success on the popularity of her act and that by leaving for Broadway, she was risking their business and was in breach of a five-year contract that gave the club ownership of her songs. Despite this legal issue, Bentley tried to move to Broadway anyway, 
but the risk did not work in her favour, as outside the Harlem environment she was met with many complaints and raised eyebrows about her raunchy performances. The complaints were so severe, it even led to the police locking the doors of some of the places where she performed. In defeat, Bentley moved back to Harlem in 1934, where she performed at the Ubangi Club until it closed in 1937. During the Great Depression, there was a great economic downturn, which also led to the repeal of Prohibition. The social upheaval greatly affected the Harlem nightlife, which became dangerous for those in the queer community. Due to these changes, Bentley decided to move to LA in 1937, where she found work at the gay club Jack and Zell Rancho. Shockingly, she was prevented from performing here by the police because of her choice to wear men's clothing. In 1942, Gladys moved to San Francisco and found regular work performing at the lesbian bar Mona's Club 440, which was well known for male impersonators. She was billed as the brown bomber of sophisticated songs and wore men's attire while performing there. Following the end of World War II in 1945, Gladys found her career taking off once more following the sudden rise in gay clubs around this time. She was also signed with Excelsior Label, which specialised in African-American artists and marketing their music to a multiracial audience. Often these songs were themed on heterosexual love, a vast contrast to Gladys Bentley's true identity and proud upfront lyrics of her typical musical outputs. Perhaps because of age or burning out, Gladys's appearances became less frequent and she moved to LA where she lived with her mother. Although performing at the Rose Room in Hollywood until 1952, little is really known about Gladys's life during this time, including if she continued to dress in male attire. The strict gender norms and socially tense environment of the McCarthy era may well have contributed to her laying low in this time as well. In 1952, Gladys wrote an article for Ebony magazine detailing her marriage to a man and successful conversion therapy treatment, which helped cure her affliction. This is a sad and unfortunate consequence of of a lively and independent woman succumbing to the pressures of a patriarchal society. In the article, we can see images of Gladys preparing dinner and doing housework. There's a clear message that in order to be a woman, you must adhere to traditional concepts of domesticated womanhood. These conventions of femininity are so closely woven with female identity that the heading of the article really says it all. Quote, I am a woman again. In her own words, though, she does provide some interesting insight into the lesbian experience herself. Quote, Some of us wear the symbols and badges of non-conformity. Others, seeking to avoid the censure of society, hide behind respectable fronts, haunted always by the fear of exposure and ostracism. Society shuns us. The unscrupulous exploit us. Very few people can understand us. In fact, a great number of us do not understand ourselves. So I think that's quite poignant because it sounds a bit as if she's talking about herself. So she is 
changing her identity in order to fit in with what's acceptable in society. Perhaps at this stage, she was sick of uh, feeling ostracised amongst her peers. Um, so maybe, maybe this gives us a bit of insight into her psychology and why she decided to go through with conversion therapy um, and why, I mean, it, it doesn't work. So th this gives us insight into why she is pretending that the therapy worked. And inevitably, Gladys was living a lie and the marriage did not last. I mean, of course, how could it last when, you know, you're not straight? Uh, so her husband, in fact, denied that he had ever married her at all. So that's interesting. Anyway, um, so following this, she moved back with her mother. So following this, she moved back with her mother um, and she lived there in L.A. Um, and then, unfortunately, she did pass away at just the age of 52 in 1960, following a sudden attack of the flu. So that ends the very interesting life of Gladys Bentley. And I think generally, based on the lives of the four women we have covered, we can see that a there's a varied array of women who performed in this genre of entertainment, but all of them were empowered by the ritual of disguising themselves as men for the entertainment of others. I would argue that Annie Hindle was really a trans man based on their total immersion into the act of dressing and convincingly presenting themselves as a man. Lester Tilly was a straight woman, talented and passionate about her beliefs. Her ability to perform as a man gave her a voice. Ella Wesner, she reinvented herself as a male impersonator and found financial and creative freedom and acceptance in regards to her sexuality among the theatre community. It is perhaps only Gladys who tried to fit into society's expectations of women. I do think her experience uh, further draws attention to some points I've made before um, about how women who took on male personas or typically masculine characteristics were seen as novel and not real women, particularly when you look at the headline of the article Gladys wrote. So now I'd like to investigate the subject of male impersonators in a modern context and more as an institution. Since I was a teenager, as I've touched upon, I have been completely fascinated by Takarazuka, uh, the review in Japan, a bombastic, glamorous, all singing, all dancing, all women theatre company in Japan. Um, I was really into musicals, as I said, uh, particularly Phantom of the Opera, which I saw six times uh, in the theatre, I was completely obsessed with, I was in all sorts of forums and used to write fan fiction, tragic, uh, and, you know, as you do, I was on Google looking at, like, bootleg Phantom of the Opera videos or something, and then I stumbled upon a Japanese production, which looked kind of different. It was, like, for one thing, I think Christine Daae had blonde hair, and I was like, what is this? And uh, clicked on it, and it wasn't the... It wasn't an adaptation of Andrew Lloyd Webber's musical, but it was a sort of Takarazuka spin on this gothic melodrama. 
Uh, and they do this quite a bit, so they adapt West End Broadway musicals, but they also tackle lots of different subject matters, including uh, adapting classic Hollywood stories uh, and things like anime and manga and all, all kinds of stuff. Although um, they feel quite Western and almost like Las Vegasy in many ways, um, they the, the sort of structure of the company and the traditions of the company very much echo that of Kabuki Theatre, which, as I'm sure you know, is the all-male uh, theatre in Japan, the traditional style, so to speak. So, yes, quite a different subject, but still male impersonation. And I do think it's very interesting to look at these practices in different cultures and to sort of compare them a bit in our minds. So I'll start by telling you a bit about the history of the review. Takarazuka Review was formed in 1914 by a railway company. The founder was Ichizo Kobayashi, who was a major contributor to the growth of the Hankyu Railway. He also opened the first department store to be built inside a train terminal, set up a Shin-onsen hot spring resort, and opened a western-style building called Paradise, which had an indoor swimming pool. This was closed after a few months because mixed gender swimming had been banned and there were no hot springs. Um, however, these innovations definitely highlight how Kobayashi was not constrained by his industry and was always looking for new and exciting ways to draw visitors to the area. So inevitably, in his mind was drawn to the idea of theatre as a new form of entertainment to enthral tourists who were coming coming in through his railway station. The first performance was in 1914 in a converted indoor pool. So this was the, the Paradise Pool. Uh, it had a lid over the actual swimming pool area, which was used to hold audience seating. The changing rooms were then converted into a stage. Even in the early days of Takarazuka, it was an all-female company with girls between the ages of 12 and 17 performing for the audience. Together, they performed Don Buraco, based on the folktale Momotaro Peach Boy. Interestingly, their production was a modified version of the kabuki style, which, in contrast to kabuki, became one of the first successful operatas employing Western music sung in Japanese. It is evident that the Takarazuka Review founder was interested in exploring Western forms of entertainment and wanted to establish Japan's own musical theatre tradition, similar to perhaps something like Broadway. In addition, at this time, there were few opportunities for women in Japan to work as entertainers, except for perhaps working as a geisha. So in a sense, he was opening many exciting new doors for talented female performers. One really important aspect of Takarazuka is Kobayashi's motto, modesty, fairness and grace, which reflects the review's goals to become a wholesome family experience and for the actresses involved to encompass a certain way of living by having excellent etiquette and a dignified way of presenting themselves. 
that is still a part of the community today. I find this interesting because in other cultures, male impersonation has been regarded as transgressive, but I feel like in Takarazuka, these women are living ultra-conservative lives. Um, and I think just as an aside, it's important to state that, you know, when we're talking about sort of homophobia, conservative values, this isn't representative of everyone living in Japan. Um, like every country, that there's a gradient of social, political ideology, and it does it does vary depending on where you are in the country, your age, uh, your circumstances. So although perhaps during this segment it may sound as if Japan is a very homophobic place, um, and very sort of hierarchical and patriarchal. Uh, this this isn't reflective of all of Japan and obviously, you know, in the countryside people will think differently to, you know, young people in, in the big city in Tokyo, somewhere like that. So I think that's important to bear in mind, uh, not to generalise. So Takarazuka continued throughout the war years and grew immensely in popularity throughout the 70s and 80s establishing a theatre in, in Tokyo, as well as a grand theatre in Takarazuka. It is around this time when they began to adapt American musicals like Singing in the Rain and The Sound of Music, and would later tap into American film, as well as creating musical spectaculars around films like An Officer and a Gentleman and even Ocean's Eleven. Of course, literary classics got the glitzy Takarazuka treatment as well, with Wuthering Heights by Emily Bronte and Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen finding themselves hitting the stage. Of course, Takarazuka has also adapted Japanese source material, which vary wildly, such as courtroom video game series Phoenix Wright, uh, to what is often regarded as the world's first literary novel, which was also written by a woman, The Tale of Genji. I think one of the most interesting sources is The Rose of Versailles, which is uh, based on a 1970s manga series by Ryoko Ikeda, which follows the life of a young French woman who was raised as a boy in order to inherit her father's wealth. Dubbed Lady Oscar, this selfless and brave character is adored by women in the court and throughout the story experiences romantic feelings for both men and women. I think the popularity of this story, which has been adapted a number of times throughout Takarazuka decades-long history, is because it very much reflects why these musicals are so popular and why the fantasy of watching high romance between women embodying hyper-feminine and hyper-masculine stereotypes uh, really captures the imagination and is quite empowering, I think. Takarazuka sells a dream world where the perfect man exists, who embodies the ideal traits of a perfect partner, but is also inherently feminine and understands women in a way that real men perhaps cannot, and that is because they are played by women. So it's very layered, quite complex, I think. 
Before we explore these themes closer, I would like to tell you a bit more about these women and in particular those who take on the male roles. But first of all, um, Takarazuka review is very structured, so let's look a bit about how it's structured, just so you can sort of understand that, I guess. So there are five troops within the review. The oldest is the flower troop, who are known for their colourful presentation, and then there's the moon troop. So these were both formed in 1921. They are known for their meticulous group performances and for being the first to stage the Rose of Versailles. The Snow Troupe were inaugurated in 1924 and although performing a huge variety of works, are quite well known for their Japan-centred performances. The Star Troupe appeared in 1933 and are commonly associated with having striking male roles in addition to coinciding with the opening of the Grand Theatre in Tokyo. The Cosmos Troupe is by far the newest, forming in 1995 to mark the 65th anniversary of Takarazuka Review. This troupe performs year-round at the Tokyo Theatre. Each troupe consists of women who either play a female role called Musumeyaku or a male role called Otto Koyaku, with two star actresses taking on the leading role in each production. These actresses are revered and idolised by the huge Takarazuka fan base, who will often have their favourites. Takarazuka is also weirdly formal, and there is no simple audition process to join the company. In fact, women must attend the Takarazuka Music School, where they learn music, dance and acting for two years before embarking on a seven-year contract. This school is notorious for its strict discipline and for making first-year students clean the premises every morning. At the end of the year, they are also divided by the faculty and current troupe members into male and female roles. If you are selected to play an Otto Koyaku, you have to cut your hair short, adopt more masculine roles in the classroom and speak in the masculine form. For the duration of their time in this, in this environment, these women cannot marry or have relationships and must literally be completely absorbed into their new persona, even dressing in an androgynous manner when they are not on stage. I find this fascinating because the ideology of Takarazuka is so traditional the founder himself often hoped that when retiring, uh, the actresses would go on to be good wives and mothers. And yet within the confines of this world, they are being forced to behave in the opposite way to their gender. So, yeah, interesting. So here we have a wildly popular theatre company with an exclusively female cast and exclusively romantic productions pre presenting heteronormative love. In addition, the fan base is predominantly female and many of the top stars have ardent fan clubs akin to the passionate followers of certain singers or actors. Inevitably, we would wonder whether or not Takarazuka is queer and the role it plays in the lesbian history of Japan. This is interesting to consider when factoring in the strict rule-driven elements of the company and the fact it is very patriarchal with a male founder and male seniors pulling the strings. The truth is, 
The fear of the Takarazuka Review promoting homosexuality has always existed and troubled Kobayashi, who was clearly very concerned with image. He even banned fan letters from being sent to stars. Generally, nothing is really highlighted about this aspect of the company and the potential for its actresses to be interested in pursuing same-sex relationships, and they are very much a family-friendly organisation. Although love is very much the focus of the musicals, and and sometimes sex may even be a theme, there are not exactly provocative or explicit. In fact, from the clips I have been, I have seen, um, they do not even kiss, but more awkwardly turn their heads to imply a kiss. Regardless, though, you cannot escape the queerness of seeing two women singing love ballads to each other, even if one of them is dressed as a man. You cannot help but imagine a degree of secrecy around this subject, but I think the implications is obvious, and of course there are lesbians who work in the company. Statistically, it would be impossible for there not to be. We can see some proof of this in lesbian author Hasusara Toshiko's work from 2016, where she interviewed former employees of the company. Translator and teacher Leonie Strickland stepped forward to give some details about how the majority of students at the school were in a relationship, and that many knowingly entered the school because it was a female environment. She gives us some more insight in this quote. I know another couple who have been together for decades again, not top stars, but very well-respected performers. Everyone knew that they were a couple. I suspect that a top star whose popularity is seen to be in jeopardy from rumours of her same-sex pairing might be told by the administration to be more discreet, or if it were thought to be more effective, perhaps she and her partner would be placed in different troops, so that they would hardly ever be in the same place at the same time. I've heard a rumour about one pair who were apparently split up in that way against their wishes. So this is really interesting, I think, because uh, it talks of rumours and secrecy. It's strange to me that, you know, these things aren't sort of normal, but hey-ho. Also, another notable alumni of the Takarazuka Review is Higashi Koyuki, who, with her partner Masuhara Hiroko, became the first same-gender female couple to receive an official marriage certificate in Japan in 2015, which feels uncomfortably recent. Navigating the world of Takarazuka is a complicated one, because there are so many contradictions depending on your interpretation. For example, upon entering Takarazuka, you have to be a virgin and remain unmarried. This level of control definitely harkens back to the Hollywood studio system, and certainly does not present the company as being a forward-thinking feminist one. However, on the other hand, many fans find it empowering watching women performing as men, betraying a strong masculine confidence that many are not used to women exhibiting. Once more, despite the still existing secrecy, it can be seen as a queer space for female admiration, or simply a space for women to fantasise about a perfect man that does not really exist. Do you see how complex and contradictory this can get? All in all, though, Takarazuka is 
this superbly fun and ostentatious and overwhelming spectacle with incredible performers who are real triple threats. The costumes are lavish, the singing filled with emotion and the set pieces operatic in scale. When I was deep in my Takarazuka fascination, I really loved the musical Elizabeth, which is based on the life of the Empress of Austria and Hungary, who was sort of the Princess Diana of the 19th century and was tragically assassinated. Anyway, her love interest is not her ageing husband, but rather a sexy, white-haired personification of death called Der Todd, who is constantly trying to lure her into the underworld. This production originated in Germany and definitely has some Sweeney Phantom of the Opera vibes. Interestingly, a lot of Takarazuka actresses have gone on to star in productions of Elizabeth in other mixed gender companies. So I think one of the most interesting actresses who has performed as Der Todd and also as Elizabeth in a production outside of Takarazuka after she retired is um, Haruno Samir, who I who was a top star in the early 2000s and she performed as Der Todd in 2002 and I would have to say she is incredibly masculine in her portrayal of this role she's not particularly androgynous I mean she is because one thing I haven't mentioned is that a lot of the male perform the quotes male performers wear a lot of makeup and often um, the clothes are quite tight fitted you know it's that they're not sort of bulking their bodies up to present a quintessentially masculine frame they're they're all still quite lean but there's something about Haruno where her she has the most incredible voice it's so controlled it doesn't sound like she's deepening it and um you know she sings exquisitely in this role and I think it's a real testament to her talent and her skill as a performer that after years of performing in this way uh, and performing primarily male roles she was then able to make that transition to female roles and not only that but portray the female counterpart to a male role that made her quite famous and was actually her debut role as a male top star in the flower troupe. So I'd like to play you a couple of clips of Haruno performing as both Der Todd and later as Elizabeth. So exactly 10 years later, she performed as Elizabeth um, in Tokyo. So let's have a look. So this first clip is from <laughs> the moment when Der Todd sees Elizabeth for the first time and he's just struck by her beauty and he doesn't want her to die at this stage. He's like, no, I want you to love me while you're alive and I'm going to keep you alive. And um, it's very like the music kicks in. It's very romantic, but a bit creepy. So let's listen to this. So this is... Haruno as Der Todd. Oh, she 
that Haruno was in where she played Elizabeth. So I hope you enjoy this clip now. Yeah, so I, I mean, I'm not sure how helpful that was, but I, I just think it's a, a, an interesting phenomenon that, you know, uh, this theatre company exists and many actresses leave it to forge successful careers. And um, yeah, it, it just, to, to me, it feels very different to the theatre industry in the West, in the UK in particular. That's what I'm thinking of. So I hope you enjoyed these clips and I hope it really highlights the incredible talent of the top stars and how well they embody the male roles they are given. I really think it's interesting but you know they're not sort of typecast as male masculine performers um, they can leave Takarazuka and go on to have successful careers playing traditionally female roles, including female roles that they played against during their careers as male performers. Uh, and I, I think that's very empowering, I guess, when you think about like Hollywood and stuff like that. Many women struggle to find interesting characters. So to me, it's just striking that in Japan, there is this institution that gives women the opportunity to not only play interesting, dynamic characters, but to also play male characters. It's like the ultimate form of, um, you know, versatility in their repertoire. And I think Haruno is a great example of that because she is so gifted as a singer and I, I, I'm just like in awe of what these women are able to do with their voices but also this the sort of sheer charisma they embody in these roles and I would highly recommend just diving down that rabbit hole on on YouTube and you know I have to say as well this is just me rambling now but I do, I do think the Takarazuka der Tods are way better than the male der Tods and uh, much more appealing somehow. I don't know. It's I can't explain it. But they're they're to, to me they're just way way more charismatic. So this episode concludes the Museum of Femininity's series about male impersonators. I really hope I have done the subject some justice by covering a variety of different women and time periods. I found it particularly interesting delving into the prestigious world of 
powerful and wealthy theatre companies and comparing them to the smoky bars and clubs uh, someone like Gladys Bentley may have performed in, or even the rowdy music halls or touring acts like Ella Wesner. It's also been fascinating to see how audiences and the public reacted to women breaking gender norms by presenting themselves in a masculine way or being open about their sexuality, like the mild amusement and curiosity Annie Hindle's many marriages drew to the admiration and love of Takrazuka fan clubs. And this is even interesting to reflect on the sadness of Gladys Bentley's story, when in order to be considered a real woman, she felt like she needed to marry a man and take on the duties of a 1950s housewife. I also find women like Vesta Tilly interesting, who, although not possessing a queer identity, use male clothing to take on characters, becoming independent and to give herself a voice when vocalising her beliefs about the war effort and recruiting men for the military. It is staggering how fascinating these women are and how by examining their lives we can learn so much about queerness, women in theatre and in general how transgressive gender representation can shed light on how women were perceived throughout history. I will be posting all my references for this episode in the show notes, along with some photos on Instagram, which you can follow at the Museum of Femininity. So this will include um, images of Gladys Bentley throughout her career, and as well as that, some pictures of Takarazuka's fabulous posters. I hope you enjoy this episode and have a fantastic rest of your week, whatever you may be doing. Goodbye.